Bueno. Hey everybody, welcome back to the Chaubert Show. I'm excited to have our next guest who I've been fortunate to know for actually quite longer than 10 plus years, almost like 15, Victor Peterson, man. How are you? Welcome Good, to Chaubert Good, man. Show. It's a pleasure being on your show, man. It's, uh, yeah, it's been a long time. Yeah, yeah. So who, who's uh, Victor Peterson for my guests who are listening in? Yeah. So my name is Victor, a serial entrepreneur, done quite a few startups, which I'm sure we'll dive into in the show, originally from Sweden. Then finally, we made our way to the Valley, which is where our paths crossed about 10, so yeah, I think about 10, 12 years ago or something like that. And uh, currently based out of the UK. Awesome. Yeah. So we, we met, I think, either while you were in Santa Clara and or I think probably you graduated and I was at Plug and Play, the incubator. Is that correct? Yeah. You were at Plug and Play. And I believe we, uh, one of the first events I went to was actually, I think, Brian Chetsky was pitching Airbnb at the time at Plug and Play Tech Center, which was, uh, well, this is a good thing I didn't go into the VC world because I thought that would be, I thought that was a ridiculously stupid idea. Well, turns out, <laughs> turns out I, I'm not a good scout for that stuff. So, uh, but yeah, I think that was one of the first times we hung out around that time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, that it's funny you mentioned that. I, I think they surpassed their 15 year mark for Airbnb initially. It was called at that time and when they presented, and I double checked, it was at WebPlay. At Plug and Play, we had this conference called WebPlay. Oh, yeah. And they were called Air Bed and Breakfast. That's right. <laughs> that's pretty awesome. And then, yeah, so that's the event you came into. And what did you study? So when you were like, you know, living in Sweden, you decided to come all the way to Santa Clara. Was the idea to come as close as possible to Silicon Valley? How did you get connected to Santa Clara? What did you study there? Yeah, so I mean, I, I've been a nerd from a long time, been a Linux user from very early on. And uh, it was just like... It's Mecca, right, for tech. And it was just something that I, I knew I wanted to get to. And like all the names that you recognize, like in the tech world, you can see them on the buildings. And it was just, yeah, it's just a completely different universe. And yeah, I remember first seeing like the Cisco buildings, like now looking back at it, it's like nothing. But yeah. that was really cool back in the days when I first showed up in the Valley. And yeah, it was so cool. And um it was really just that, like being close to like the epicenter of where everything is happening really. And I think definitely things have changed since, but back then that was like, that was where everything happened really. Um, yeah. So that's really why I wanted to be where everything happened. That's amazing. Yeah. I mean, back then, uh, I mean, I'm, I was fortunate enough to grow up here in the peninsula in San Mateo and I saw like, you know, you were saying Cisco. I remember when they were building the new Oracle buildings back in the nineties. And I mean, I'm still to this day, I'm pretty uh, pretty surprised. I mean, they're moving off to Texas and those buildings, I don't know what's going to happen with them, but they're still pretty incredible after all these years. It's got to be like a 30, 20, 30 years since those were built. And then the next yeah. phase, as you were mentioning, is like, it was really the web products that were booming back when we were in our careers and it was like, yeah. Google just went public. So all the like stuff, mm. and then like obviously social media, um, and Apple started to resurface from the death and, <laughs> and yeah, exactly. Steve Jobs came back you know, took over Apple, made it actual, like a, a resurgence of a brand mm. uh, and for what it was. And, and really the iPhone, I think was the, the yeah. cornerstone at that time that became like everyone, you know, had a device that's a smartphone. Now they do, which is, yes. Awesome. Yeah, yes. Queuing up for the first iPhone. <laughs> yeah. And it's all relatable to why I'm bringing this up. Uh, yeah. So uh, with you, 
So you came to Santa Clara, you got in, you moved from you know, Sweden to North California. What did you study? You said you were a nerd. Did you study engineering product? No. So it's funny. I mean, I actually didn't end up at Santa Clara first. I actually ended up at stint at Foothill. In okay. Los Altos. Yeah. And then I, yes, yeah, so I ended up there, got to actually, I got to know my co-founder there at Foothill. And, um, I um, I didn't study engineering actually. Like that always been a hobby more so than anything. I ended up doing the business side of things, which, in retrospect, was I don't know if it was good or not. But <laughs> hey, I guess few people work in their uh, field of study, where a lot of people do not work in their field of studies. But I ended up doing management at Santa Clara, which ended up being. I mean, it's, I don't think it's something that anybody should study as undergrad. If somebody looking for career advice <laughs> or 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 advice for that. It's not something you could ever possibly relate to. It's a fantastic program there. And you had teachers from like their MBA program, which is really good. So like fantastic stuff and fantastic experiences, but it's just a concept that I don't think you are experienced enough at that age to relate to. Uh, it's too theoretical. So that's what I studied. And uh, I definitely am happy that I ended up where I, where I did end up, but it's just like, I should probably have studied like, I don't know, finance something instead or, or engineering, because I think that would be a lot more <laughs> usable. Yeah. I mean, it's more specific. Uh, yeah. of a target. I mean, I look back, I did international business Yeah, and, uh, you know, if I had to choose to exactly mention, I would probably done like finance or something, find yeah. a little more specific economics. Uh, That's right. Yeah, exactly. Accounting. That's more math relatable business. Yeah. And so like you, okay, so stepping back a little bit, you found your co-founder of your first venture, your current one. Well, Uh, all the above, actually. We've done quite a few ventures together. Yeah, so we ended up, like this was back in the Web 2.0 era, really, right? When, well, where Ajax was starting to become a thing and like Web started to become like responsive and actually usable in, in a new way. So we actually, our first project was something that we worked on with called, well, it's funny because this takes me down memory lane. It was an email aggregator called EPMail. And the idea was basically you could bring all your webmail accounts into a single interface. And I'm not sure if you remember Mebo. Like it was basically the same spin, right? But for email. So we did it for a while, but for whatever reasons we ended Mebo up. Mebo the chat app? Like, yeah, that was that was the IM aggregator, right? It's, yeah. it's so funny. We have like almost like full circle now because everybody's like, well, there are too many IM platform these days. Can we just bring them all into one? And <laughs> well, we've been there before. Wow. Uh, I heard that word, uh, Mebo and forever. Uh, I know. It's crazy. So yeah. yeah. And then what was the first project? And uh, if you said you were creating a, a email aggregator with your co-founder or yeah. what was, interesting. That's right. What yeah. So that was the, yeah. So we created an email aggregator that it never really took off, but it was also like, it could never really had worked because of restriction. Well, it was so much duct tape that it would never really have scaled anyways, but we ended up pivoting to email migration instead, and we created something called Yippie Move, which was our first real project together. That ended up being somewhat successful. We ended up scaling the business, and it did all right, like as a lifestyle business, I guess, in a way. Yeah, we had some pretty good times with that and learned a lot about building and scaling a startup, really, but most of them were engineering side and like tech side. And that was that was really interesting, actually, because I'm... Yeah. What year is this? Sorry, what year was this? Yes. Uh, this must have been around 2009, I want to say. 2009, 2010. Okay, around still that. in Northern California at that point? Yeah, we were. We were. We were doing... It's funny because we we started doing remote before remote was cool. So we've uh, in all events, we remote only. But we started out doing remote, largely because my co-founder was down in South and San Jose and I was in Mountain View. And people in the Bay Area know that's it's a pain in the ass to get between. That's... 
like in the drive in the middle of the night, that's like a 20 minute drive, but in during daytime, that can take you like hours. So we ended up just working remotely, both of us. <laughs> Crazy to think the logistics of all this, right? Uh, yeah. And just like the short amount of time when you could just kind of execute on other things. Yeah. yeah. I mean, there's, there's a lot of talk now about like, should people get back to office or not? I think in Northern California, it's still majority work from home versus yeah. like we have friends in tech in different places around the world, a lot of which are actually back in offices. Yeah. So, okay. And then were you still at Santa Clara or were you out at this point? That was just around, around my graduation, we started shipping this. So actually we, well, this, this, it's funny because my business experience wasn't really great at that point in time in terms of like private market fit and all that. So we would try to sell this to students, right? For like, we, you can email, you can migrate your university email from uh, your university system to whatever your email system of you're choosing, like a Gmail or whatnot. That was our initial go-to market. Oh, okay. Wow. Before Gmail allowed anything like this, right? No, I mean, we were doing it over IMAP. So it was interesting. Just, yeah, but they, had, they did not have any tools for that built in whatsoever, right? So yeah. Why so did you create a, an email assistant? You guys just get annoyed yourselves and say, like, yeah, we got to do this. Like, so my, like, my, my thesis for every single project that we've done, or not thesis, but like part of my guide has been like, I only want to create products that I want to use myself. So every single project or product we've done has sprung out of something that I've had a need for myself. So this really started when, we graduated from university from Santa Clara and they would basically say, Hey, we're going to shut down your email and delete it in X weeks. And we'll, and I was like, I have a lot of stuff in there. I don't want to lose this. I can solve this. Like I, I'm a nerd. I can figure out how to do this stuff, but the vast majority cannot. So that's kind of where we started and build this, but well, it's not (laughs) exactly rocket science that is going after the student market and trying to charge them money is not a great go-to market because basically, uh, yes. yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah yeah exactly and now i mean these companies are now like public or unicorn based like chegg yeah you know, the heroes of the world and others but it took them a really long time to get that product market fit at universities and especially yeah. it's kind of one getting students to get acclimated and actually spending the money Yes. Uh, at one angle, the other is like, it's even worse trying to sell two universities and their departments and things of that nature. Yeah. Uh, and we, we actually ended up like, actually, some of our largest customers for, for Yipimove ended up being actually universities that really? did. Yeah. In house. Yeah. So they actually ended up using our tools for their internal migrations or either for like migrate between systems or offering us to their alumni network or to their student body as a migration tool. So we actually did end up doing that for a bit. But it was never like a massively successful business. So it's something that we eventually shut down a few years later. Okay. Uh, so when did you, at that point, uh, you were still in the Valley. How long were you in the Valley? And then you had to obviously get back to Europe. When was that time frame? So uh, my visa expired, I believe, 2010. So I, I hung around the Bay Area around for like a year and a half or so after graduation, I believe. But then eventually, I mean, bear in mind, this is still like the Tuesday crash is still very fresh and uh, (laughs) getting somebody to sponsor you for a visa was just not going to happen. So I ended up going back to Europe and ended up living as a digital nomad for quite, quite a few years, actually, just hopping around and working remotely, really. And then I eventually found myself in the UK. Okay. Uh, and and uh, how did you decide on the UK? I remember you mentioned like London, obviously, uh, is business centric. It's, yeah. uh, as you said, practical. You could get on in and out of the flights, paths, anywhere in Europe and abroad. 
But what was like other means? Was it like a more of a hub because the tech in Europe was better to be there? I think uh, culturally, the UK is a halfway point between Europe and the US culturally in the sense of like, particularly on the business side, it's risk averse in some ways and it's obviously way more risk averse than the US, but it's far more liberal than mainland Europe, I would say. And obviously- Can you give an example? I mean, you're from, so like if you had to run your company in like Stockholm, Sweden versus like London, hmm. what would be a good example of this? I mean, I think there is, there is far- easier legislation to, to navigate in the UK than it is in Northern Europe, in particular in Sweden, particularly for like running a business. Like it, there's a lot of overhead running a business in Sweden, for instance. I mean, I know they've simplified a lot of the, these things in the last few years, but it's still like a lot more complicated than doing it in the UK. And uh, then, I mean, Sweden is an odd one because it's an outlier in so many ways, because yeah, you do have a really good tech scene in Stockholm in, Stock in particular. Well, yeah, didn't, didn't Spotify come out of either Stockholm? Yeah, or- yeah I mean, Stockholm, Spotify came out of there. You have Klarna came out of there. Like, I mean, even back in the, I mean, it kind of started with the Skype days, right? Because Skype, yes. well, the co-founders, Swedish, Swedish right? So, um, uh, yeah, I thought it was Estonia, but yeah, it's interesting. But- one of each, yeah. Like, so that's like, but that kind of kickstarted a, a big part of the tech scene in, I would say, in Northern, well, in Scandinavia, really, because they kind of created a VC environment that didn't exist before. Because yeah, the angels. Gaming, the gaming world is also pretty strong in the Nordic, obviously with the likes yeah. of Rovio, Supercell. And um, King. Yeah, yeah, wow, and King, forgot about that. I thought King, yeah. uh, I, I keep forgetting they're originally from the Nordic, but they have a huge presence in the UK and Spain. Yeah, I think they're headquartered in the UK, but I'm, I mean, they are Swedish originally, right? Which is what, yes. what happens to a lot of Swedish companies. Like Spotify is kind of an outlier, I would say. Because a lot of them, like once you become too successful for Sweden, you end up moving either to Berlin or to London, I would say. Or SF, of course. Or less, maybe New York because it's halfway closer. Yeah, I think they actually have uh, their presence mostly in New York. It also helps because they're in the music industry, mm. uh, the licensing rights and the ad tech relationships. Well, so, okay. So you went to UK. Did you continue running these companies? You said uh, you pivoted or did you start a new company? Yeah. I mean, I mean, it's like, a, so obviously you and I are both been in the mobile app world. I'm one of it. It's not, it's actually not mobile, but I do recall, I, maybe I'm jumping around here, but you had Blotter, which is a top yes. Mac app, top 10 yes. Mac app. And, uh, you know, could you explain that story. You still have it or not? You know, where is it at? Yeah. So this is actually this actually before I moved to the UK. So this happened while I was like doing like the digital nomad style lifestyle. So when we so we saw like Eat Move would never really be the big thing. So we decided to start funneling resources into Blotter, which is we managed to hit it really well because we were in the Mac App Store. On launch for the Mac App Store for uh, the Mac App Store, is, Mac OS. What is Blotter on the Mac App Store? Like, what is it? So, yeah, so it's basically the idea was it came from again came out of like an initial pain point that I had, which was like sometimes this is like back then like notifications on calendars and whatnot wasn't that great. They weren't that great. So what we did decided to do was basically like just like a physical blotter, like render your calendar on your wallpaper, like on your desktop, but. You couldn't interact with it. It was just literally sitting there and just showing what your events were for the day. So like a seven-day forecast or a five-day forecast of like your event, or your calendar. 
And it became very successful, partially because we were in there early and that momentum helped build up the traction. But we were top 10 proactive in the US, like we were top 10 in the entire app store in a few countries. And granted, the Mac app store is a lot smaller than the iOS app store in terms of total downloads, but still it was doing pretty well, I would say. But we had, I mean, back in those days, the problem with Mac app store was, and still is to some degree, and but it's shifting in the iOS world, was you only have that one single revenue, one sale. So you have to be phenomenally successful to actually... So up from, premium, uh, up from premium, are you talking about like, can you do in-app? Or you could kind of do in-app, but it was not really a thing back then. So... What year is this? 2012-ish, I want to say. Oh, okay. So it's like uh, well beyond like 10 years. Yeah. So initially, yeah. like you know, the same thing in mobile, it was like either you had a premium app and or free, and then you had to offer advertising for the free to generate revenue. Yes. And then in and around like the time frame you just mentioned, 2012 is when in-app purchases just launched. Yeah. And then obviously in-app purchases has now become the thing where it's IAP, like, you know, driven revenue stream primarily mm-hmm. for most of these apps, as you can or see. Or even like, uh, like what we really want to do was like, well, one of the reasons why we eventually ended up abandoning the project was because it was extremely difficult to charge between releases, right? So if we want to do like a new overhaul of the entire app and we want to, there was no vehicle for sending people to do an upgrade essentially. It was very manual and very like locked down because Apple wanted to So no, like an app to, hey, would you like this update or upgrade or subscription kind of upgrade? Like, Yeah, it was very restricted back in those days. Like I think it's better today, but it was extremely restricted back in those days. So how long did that last? And then what did you do it after? Yeah, so that lasted us, I think we spent a good two years or so on that. And it did pretty well. And we, so what we ended up doing was because we realized that this is probably never going to be like the big thing either. So we ended up creating our next venture, which is called Screenly, which is I'm doing today. And the backstory of that is is quite interesting because we, (laughs) it was not, there were so many timings that just happened to align. So we ended up through a sequence of events acquiring a small digital signage network in Sweden. And these are basically like screens with advertisement on, right? We were, through a series of events, we basically ended up buying one of these with like, I think it was just something small, like 10, 12 screens, something like that. And because they were, they were folding, so we were like, we picked them up for like nothing. And then we realized that, oh crap, there's no software for this that we actually like. So we ended up writing our own software for driving these screens. And three or four months later was when the first Raspberry Pi was announced. So whilst before that, we were looking at how can we possibly like build this ourselves? So like we were looking at like designing boards or not to actually scale this business. But then the Raspberry Pi came out and it was like, actually this is perfect what our use case is. And it's order of magnitude cheaper than what we were already using. So we ended up porting our software stack to the Raspberry Pi. And it was probably one of the first, like this like in June 2013, I want to say. And we ended up, yes, yeah, so we ended up open sourcing and basically providing our software uh, for free for the Raspberry Pi. Because we had no intention of actually creating commercial business around this. We were more like, well, we solved our own needs for this. Very cool. Yeah. And, yeah. You open sourced it, you, you kind of ported it to, like at that time, Raspberry Pi, wasn't it quite, quite new, 2013? It was, yeah. It was like the Raspberry Pi came out like in... March of that year, I believe. And I was on the wait list and I received it in June. Right, and it. that's when I 
just jumped on this and reported it to Raspberry Pi and announced on the Raspberry Pi forum. And like you today, moved to the UK. Uh, this is actually before UK, so I was not in the UK at that time. So interesting. So you got this company out of Sweden. You kind of saw a need for you know just having an in-house software. You guys basically developed yeah. it. And you're like, yeah, let's put it open open source. You saw some probably good amount of traction to say, you know what, this could be you know a commercial based product. When was this? Yeah, so basically, I mean, today, like this, I mean, now it's called Amphias, and it's like the most popular open source digital signed software on GitHub by order of magnitude. I think it's like three times larger than the number two or something like that. And the traction started really coming in quickly. And I vividly remember, I think about a month or two after we shipped this, we got in touch from a an ATM vendor that wanted to deploy this across their entire ATM network. And we're talking like 10,000 ATMs or something like that. And we were like, but they, anyway, that deal itself did not work out, but we started to have more and more because they basically wanted to own IP and whatnot. And we're like, no, we're not doing that. So we ended up realizing that there's something here. So we started to basically fork, well, not fork, but modify the open source version to have like a control center control interface, like an, a, a web console. And uh, today that's what's called Screenly. And um, so we basically built up, up and uh, it was purely our demand from the customers really that people just asking like, hey, can you build this for us? Because we don't want to run it ourselves. So it's yeah, kind of- open- Good examples of like who uses Screenly right now uh, at the public? Yeah, I mean, we actually, um, we have NAS as a customer. We have like Accenture as a customer. Like we have Lowe's as a customer. Like massive brands are using our stuff around the world. Yeah. We're very US centric. We are a US company. So like all these entities are all based out of US, even though we are not ourselves in the US anymore. But our customer base has remained being in the US. So that's why we still incorporated there. But yeah, we have some really big companies there. And like, so we've been growing this for years and scaled up the company to reasonable size, never took any investments. So we basically bootstrapped this from scratch and never take an investment even to today. So it's possible to bootstrap, but it's <laughs> a lot harder in many ways, but it does provide a lot more benefits in other ways. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's it's basically like acceleration. Uh, if you're able to raise capital, you also dilute you know the ownership yes. and give it to somebody else. They also, and control. Yeah, yeah, percentage of the control. And they're looking for the return on investments. Like ideally, yeah. they say 10 years, but like it could be sooner. So yeah, I mean, now you guys are just kind of cash flow positive. You just uh, uh, yeah. own it and you run it that way. And, and I'm assuming it's lean. It's pretty yeah. you know, focused out. And you, you're remote. Is you okay? So, like, when did you end up going to like UK? And is your co-founder there, or he's? Is, are they still yeah. in uh, you know Northern California or back in Europe, or are they? So my co-founder is uh, so yeah. Going back to what you said before about the UK, so I moved to the UK partially because my co-founder was here, and this is by the time we were we were doing Screenly, right? So, and he was here, and I was kind of like a bit getting a bit fed up with the whole digital nomad lifestyle because. Whilst that lo- sounds lovely and that makes for a great Instagram account, the reality is that it's it wears you down if, if you do it for a long enough time period. At least it did to me. So I kind of wanted to have a base, and I knew my base. It, my base couldn't be Sweden because I, yeah, it, it's just not where I wanted to be. So I ended up in the UK and ended up being like 
in shortage, uh, spending a lot of time in shortage, which like where all the, I mean, it's like, it's probably the closest, for people not familiar with London, but it's like, it's the closest San Francisco that you'll have in London, I would say. It's, yeah, it, to me, when it, when it was starting to pick up about, God, over, this is even way over past uh, 10 years ago. Because 10 years ago, it was starting to become trendy. Like, yeah. It was like the Mission District. It was yeah, like, it's a little bit like, if you go more towards like Hackney, like it definitely has a Mission vibe to it in, in a European way. <laughs> yeah. Casual, fun, artsy. Yes. Uh, yes. Yeah, a lot of the game studios are also there besides the startups. Yes. So yeah, now it's definitely a nicer neighborhood. Yeah. Uh, so like, for me, it was like, I was a bit, well, it's funny because I bought a one-way ticket in London and like a two-week Airbnb in shortage when I first moved. And and I figured, like, I just figured out as we go. And uh, yeah, it was really like, just after a few days in shortage, I was like, yeah, I could definitely see myself hanging out here. It just, it was my vibe. I just liked it. And it's, because London is so different. You have so many different vibes in London. It's gigantic. Uh, I think there's yeah. about eight to twelve million people in a big, like big sprawling spider web of a city. I call it. Yeah, exactly. So we like you have like I previously when I spent time in London, I've been more like in a tourist area or like I don't know in Mayfair, or whatnot. But like that's never been my scene. So when I kind of discovered like the tech scene in London in Shoreditch, I was like, yeah, I could definitely see myself like hanging out here, and that I felt at home there. Um, nice. And how long were you there for in London specifically? Yeah. So I moved out of London last year, actually. So I was in London for six or six years or so. And then, yeah, I moved out of London last year to Bristol. And Bristol is like, it's a nice, it's not London, but it has a lot of other benefits over London. So it's like a lot more space and it's a lot more green. But I mean, I still, I like being in the UK. It's really nice. And yeah, I mean, it's a good it's a good hub, I think, for a lot of things. And yeah, there are play other places in Europe that I really like spending time in as well. But it's definitely one of my like favorite places in Europe to spend time in and actually spending time like for longer stretches of time rather than just visiting. I guess I have two quick questions, but one is based on that. Like you you're in the UK, you know, and then how did you you, know, you obviously at some point being in tech have to come to Silicon Valley? That's like one. Like how often would you actually if, um, before the pandemic, I'm assuming more so than now, would have to come here for business purposes and or the conferences to get a, you know acclimated with the the newest software launches by iOS or Android or, or anybody else, basically. And, so it's a really ahead. good question, right? So I I think it's really like you alluded to like pre and post COVID. Yeah. Before COVID, I would probably do like at least one or two trips a year and just just to catch up with people and just yeah get a feel of what's new, what not. Post-COVID, I think it has changed so much that I haven't been to SF since before COVID. I'm going soon, but I haven't been in a long time. And I just feel like even in SF, like, well, you're a good example yourself, right? A lot of my friends used to be in SF, but mostly people left post-COVID or during COVID. So I feel like there is less need for those travels like i think definitely i need to do i, I definitely need for like work wise i need to do one trip at least to the u.s a year minimum but yeah. before it was a lot more now it's a lot less in terms of like real need for actually sitting down with people because people are so much more comfortable with like zooms and whatnot that's definitely true i think there is just a few it depends on uh the scenario too at least from my perspective what i do in like business development 
to a certain extent, it, it's helpful to have that face-to-face interaction if you're doing a large business deal. Uh, yes. That's six, seven figures. You know, if I could do a podcast in person, that interaction contextually is a lot more different with yes. you and I versus like obviously through this digital screen. So there's a few, I mean, those are just a few examples there. I don't, you know, product, I am curious. I always ask people like product and artwork for the gaming side of things, animation-wise slash development. So it depends on the, the the projects and things like that. Web is a little bit more flexible. I think hardware, you have to be a little bit more in-person to develop the, you know, the chipsets. So, yeah, I mean, it's definitely been an interesting time frame in the last few years, the adjustments. And, and I think it's definitely been, it's going to be scalable. It is, yeah. it has been, and I think people are going to be living this kind of hybrid lifestyle. But it, like, I think it's, it, the two very things, different things, like it's, it's internal and external, right? So internally, we do a summit every year. We fly in everybody, the entire company together. We spend like a week or so together. Nice. And that, I mean, I can literally like see a culture difference before and after the first one we did. And because it, there is, it's such a big difference between like in particular in low context medium, like Slack or whatnot. If you don't have the context of the person you're speaking to, you don't know how this person behaves. It's really easy to misinterpret messages. Whereas right. if you met them and you had a drink with them and you just like, okay, I can understand this person more holistically, it reduces misunderstandings to a great degree, I think. Because that, and kind of the same thing goes for business in some ways, right? Like it's a lot easier for you and I to have a good conversation over a Zoom meeting or whatnot, just because we have that foundation that we built over the years, like yes. we're having had beers with people. So you definitely understand the better. So I think that will never go away. But, and that's why we have still like events and so on, right? And yeah. Because it's like, at least in, I don't think, at least I don't go to events to learn new things because that's not where you get that knowledge from. You go to events to like meet somebody in person. Yeah. That's idealistic. Yes. I mean, there are still some events that share knowledge share or updates and launches. And yeah, generally, sure. Well, that's like, Okay, Apple. Yeah, sure, Apple yeah, can do it. Exactly. But like, Apple how many more companies, right? <laughs> yeah, that's very true. I guess the second point was, uh, you know, I was going to lead to like the digital signage mm. industry that you're in. You know, we, I am curious, you're more on the enterprise software side. And explain to me like how big this overall industry is, like market share wise, maybe geographically, because internationally, it's definitely been a uh, more prevalent in Europe and Asia than North America is just starting to pick up here and there. And then like how big is kind of the software side? I mean, so yeah, I think we're a bit of an outlier in the industry, right? Cause we are like, we started doing traditional digital signage and yeah, we do have customers doing advertisement, but it's, we are so much wider spread than just doing advertisement. So it's harder to say like the ad world is this much because it's not really like our time anyway. So it's kind of like, it's not a good quantifier of what we're doing because a lot of our screens are like dashboards within a company or like internal metrics or internal, I don't know, HR pushing messages to like their employees. Like that, like retail is what most people talk about when they talk about signage, but what so you're we have- enterprise software based company that's just <laughs> vertical is digital signage. Kind that's of. Yeah. Important. I mean, uh, like that has been the case before, mostly, yes. I mean, that's, we have a lot of educational customers. They use it for like internal messaging or like across campuses or like that's kind of like a big part of our business. But 
so over the last few years, we've we've kind of had, I mean, I wouldn't say an existential crisis, but it's like, it's Diggle signage is raised to the bottom in many ways because it's just, in particular, when it, like, okay, when it comes to like high street digital signage, we're talking proper like brand names. They can f- spend a lot on their flagship stores and they do like really cool signage. But the vast majority of it is just like, okay, here are 10 JPEGs slide through these every X second. Yeah, because like that, that's the vast majority of uh, digital signage in retail. And for that, it's a race to the bottom, right? So where the money is, is either like doing these extremely custom one-offs or you look for another vertical or another application. So basically post-COVID, many of the innovative companies in Sinus, because Sinus had a massive crisis during COVID because what, you particularly- oh, Nobody was seeing them like watching right. obviously. Yeah, so what ended up being like a aha moment then? Um, yeah. So, so, and the whole industry is like, oh, do we, <laughs> do we extend ourselves to the personal device? Do you extend it to like the desktop do, or, or inevitably it was obviously going to open up and, and now it's back, but that's a really good point. Yeah. I mean, so, so our existential crisis was basically like, well, we can keep doing this and like, we can do like a super slick UI. We're very, very big on security, for instance, which is why we're landing a lot of enterprise contracts. Like we, that's something that I'm personally very passionate about security. So we like we've we probably built the most over-engineered digital signage player on the market from a security and software perspective. Which this is kind of where we realized like okay, so if we really want to play to strength, we can't go down this whole path of like lowest common denominator and like racing the bottom of pricing. We're never gonna win that game. There are definitely companies out there that are better at that. So we had an epiphany, and what we really realized that what we want to do and what we are very well set up to do is to open up to developers and actually provide our platform as a developer platform. So we're going through a kind of a pivot right now in the company where we are building, we call it a screen operating system. It's not essentially true from a purist perspective, but it's basically a way for you to build software for screens. So we call them edge apps and they can basically interface with sensors or hardware the idea is the difference between a vending machine a digital signage screen a wayfinding screen or a self-checkout counter is really just what's plugged into it they're all the same behind the scenes like hardware wise roughly speaking but there's no there's no off-the-shelf developer kit for this that caters to modern developers there are some like windows legacy stuff kind of i would call it legacy like ui builders for this stuff but the reality is that if you're going to build that scale and manage that scale, you need to solve so many problems like that we've already solved for. Well, let me, I'm, I'm in advertising, right? Digital advertising yeah. and mobile. And I'm like, digital screen I see now, <laughs> this is so bad, but it's like, it's just my, my, in my DNA is like, that could be an advertising platform. Yeah. That could be, and, and it's not. So for example, since COVID uh, and just like your day-to-day life, you know, like smart you know, electric cars specifically like Tesla's, like that hmm. screen to me could part of it could be an ad or sure. a contextual one. Your your Peloton that you're riding, part of that could be an ad that's relatable. Hmm. Uh, obviously, there's a lot of new rules and laws speaking of security. You know, in Europe, GDPR and California CCPA, and then beyond, like a, just a plethora of like you know secures. <laughs> 
of yeah. software usage, iOS and now and Android both have their own kind of uh, new toolkits, scale ad network for Apple and so forth. So in any case, I was like, oh, maybe then you, you can use Screenly basically mm. uh, to create this platform. Is that kind of like where you're, you know, like if someone has like an idea like this, when you go and use your open source code and then just like, yeah, I mean, so this is not just for clarity. This is not the open source version. This is the commercial version. So the, they are, they start out the same project, but today they don't share any code at all. So they're two completely separate projects. But the point is that yes, you could you could definitely do this. Yes, you can build anything that you can build for a screen. Like the, uh, our vision is basically like we will be the go-to platform for when you build something for a screen. It doesn't matter if it's a self-checkout counter or a vending machine or anything in between or signage, right? Like that's, we want to build that framework that tailors to modern developers. Cause that's like, we're compared to most people in our industry, we are way nerdier. Like we come from an engineering background, whereas most people in our industry tend to come from ad agency world. So are, are, is it been a little bit of a challenge for them who say, Oh, I want this software. Can I just, you know, they have to hire an engineer to use your platform or you guys actually do it like almost like a, Managed service. Yeah, I mean, so, that, so this is something we are shipping, right? So um, MSPs will definitely be part of this playbook because we are not a consultancy shop, right? Right. Yeah, um, yeah. so we definitely will be working with MSPs. Right. Yeah, we, we are, the way we see it is like we want to be a small cog in a bigger wheel, right? So we want to be part of the blueprint for somebody who has needs for screen in their greater go-to-market strategy, right? Regardless if that's like a screen that's part of a dashboard, a menu board, or anything in between, like or check account. Like we should, we want to be the platform that you can build on because we've already solved many of the or most of the hard problems already at scale. Like security updates, software update. Like how do you do? Like how do you actually make them safe? Because so many of these screens you see are like either taken over by malicious actor for fun or for profit, like in ransomware or botnets, right? So it's, it's a massive liability. Does that happen though? Like how frequently does someone actually? You know, if I mean, you follow, like, I mean, you had like ransomware in, in San Francisco where in the metro, like not long ago, right? That took down the entire system, the Muni, right? And so it definitely happens because the thing is, the problem is if you are an MS, or if you're a software provider, right? And you want to provide kiosks, for instance, your value is in the actual very last mile, meaning like what's on the actual screen. You don't get any value from making sure that your security updates are updated. Like so many of these touch screens and kiosks and stuff like that you buy from like China, they're running like EOL Android. And mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. And it's like you're just asking for trouble. But it's security is always one of those things that people don't think about security until it's a PR disaster. Right? Yeah. It's like a fire situation. I get it. Yeah. So but, so, so, so yes, yeah, so our that. solution is basically like but if we can make it's easy for the developers and meet them in tooling and whatnot that they understand already. Like, so our runtime is very similar to like Cloud for Workers or, and our CLI is very similar to many of those other tools out there. So like if we provide a use environment for them that's very similar, yeah. they like they will not only make their life easier, but we can also solve all those other problems in process. Okay, cool. And I could picture it as like screenly sort of security certificate basically. For digital science, that'd be interesting. And their software platform. When, uh, so with the time remaining, I have a couple of questions. First, I'm a big fan of like picking your brain about your, the future, where it's at. Hmm. Both like 
in tech as well as just kind of your industry. Uh, mm. I'm curious, along with like this whole, I mean, right now, everything hyped about AI, artificial intelligence, uh, yeah. but like just in general, what is your perspective on the future or even now for the future of like digital signage, yeah. software as a service for digital signage, security, security service or security platform in general, like overall and then overall tech? Yeah. So let's start with the signage, right? So I think there's definitely been in the last six months, a bit of an aha moment for a lot of people in that industry where they actually started to realize that the decision makers are more commonly the developers these days than they used to be. So our thesis is that the developers will be the decision makers of the future, which is why we need to cater to them more so than the people on the marketing side of the organization, right? So that's the first one. So you start to see more people talking about developers. And I think that's a trend that's going to be beneficial for us. And I think that's a bigger trend in industry that spans most vendors. So I think that's going to be a big shift. And I mean, and with that, I think security kind of will enter the arena because if you actually put in this front of competent developers, they will ask the right questions, right? About security as well. So I think that will become a strength for companies like ourselves because they understand it and we can meet them and we can speak their language, right? So that's one trend that I see, like more developers. If we take a step back and look at technologies, like one thing that I think that I'm very bullish on is WebAssembly. I think that's going to be massive in the next five years. It's still in the early days and you start to see some really cool POCs, but beyond companies like Cloudflare and whatnot and Fastly and these guys, like not a lot of people are using it at scale yet. But I think that's going to be like the language of the future of the web, right? Because before it's going to be really impressive. So that's that's a bigger industry trend. I think it's going to be super interesting to follow as it becomes more mature. And how about yourself and Screenly? Like, what do you have? And what are you excited about in general outside of these? Yeah, I mean, I'm super excited to get this off the ground, right? We've been working long and hard on this app thing, and I think that I mean, we haven't seen anything like this in the industry before. So I think this could really make a dent in the industry. And yeah, like where that takes us in the next three to five years, we don't know. But I think we're going to enter the radar on a lot of interesting people in the industry. And I think that's going to, let's see what happens if that is an exit or whatever happens from there. Like that's something that we are exploring in the future. Um, But I mean, it's, yeah, we've done this for 10 years now, so... (laughs) It would be nice to have a payday at one point in the next five years or so. And and that's what I think that's that's one of the, one of the hopes that we have at some point in the near future, that if we can find the right strategic partner, um, that would be interesting for us as well. And just help grow us faster within that narrative. So we need to find a strategic partner to understand the same playbook. But I think that's a big thing for us to get that off the ground and really scale it. So that's, yeah, I think that's that's my next three to five years, like focusing on building this up and Let's see if we can find a bigger partner we can work with. And yeah, you just really scale it and get in it. And if we don't, like we, at the same token, we are bootstrapped, we're cash flow positive. We are growing steadily like clockwork and uh, we don't need to sell, <laughs> which is uh, one of the big yeah, perks of bootstrapping. That's awesome. Well, thanks so much, Victor Peterson, for joining me at the Chabert Show and sharing you know your story as well as the story of Screenly. And thanks everybody for listening in. Have a great uh, day.